sometimes it's an extra challenge. But hey, this morning, we get to conclude the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. If you recall, just a handful of weeks ago, we started this book, and uh, Cal uh, preached to us on a series of reversals at the beginning. But reversals then were not good things, they were bad things. The reversals amounted to God turning his blessings, what he gave us for our enjoyment, for our good, for his glory. It amounted to turning those blessings into curses. And now we, at the end of the book, we encounter a new set of reversals, yet these reversals are not blessings to curses. They are God's transformation of rebels into trophies of his grace. It really is what David said in Psalm 30, God turns our mourning into dancing. He exchanges our sackcloth, and that's the clothing of confession and repentance and lament. He exchanges our sackcloth for clothes of gladness. He draws us up, he heals us, he restores us, and because of these things, We will sing his praise, and we will not be silent. Zephaniah has given us a clear and brief display of the day of the Lord. And once again, we concluded 1 Thessalonians. We've investigated now Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, and then we're going to pick back up in two weeks with 2 Thessalonians and continue with that theme, really, the day of the Lord. Next week, it'll be a, a, a lone sermon. Uh, it looks like we'll be covering uh, a text related to evangelism. So prepare yourself for that. Looks like 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Then we'll go into 2 Thessalonians. Zephaniah, though, has been our spot to camp out here these past several weeks. And let's read here in chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Let's conclude. Let's conclude this prophetic book. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult. With all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, At that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will 
changed their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted to look at your word, especially on today when it tells us so much about how you delight in us, your people. Father, I pray that these truths would settle deeply into who we are, that we would have a complete picture of who you are. As best as possible, this side of eternity, help us to know you, to know your ways, to celebrate you, and to receive all of these truths as your people. We love you. We once again thank you for the gospel, which is the the shining evidence of your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the uh, title for today, we're going to call it God's Delight. God's Delight. One commentator, Octomire, he writes of this passage right here, the book of Zephaniah ends in almost unimaginable joy unimaginable joy. And so just jumping right into our theme, the bleak outlook of the wayward nations fades behind the immeasurable joy of the redeemed. The bleak outlook of the nations, the wayward nations fades behind the immeasurable joy of the redeemed. So he gives us, I think, uh, three activities of the redeemed in this passage. Three activities of the redeemed. The first one from verses 14 and 15, we joyfully celebrate for innumerable reasons. We joyfully celebrate for innumerable reasons. So let's do verse 14 today. Let's do it today. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, why can we do this? Why can we look at these repeated commands, sing, shout, rejoice, exult? Why? Why should we? Why can we do this? Because look what God has done. Look what God has done. We have here uh, in these these verses right here, uh, especially in verse 15, we have uh, what are called perfectives of confidence. So this is uh, language, you know, um, your verb tenses and whatnot. These are perfectives of confidence. And that means that as the, the writers, oftentimes the prophetic literature will speak of future events, things that have not happened yet, in ways that are past. Okay? So so to say, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This is yet future for these people. Do you see? He is saying these things as if they are already done. So they can rejoice in what will be as if it is already 
He speaks of the certainty of these events, future events, as if they've already occurred. And I want to ask you, do you believe those things today? Do you believe those things? We joyfully celebrate for innumerable reasons. He notes first here, why? Innumerable judgments turn away. Innumerable judgments turned away. So these judgments that we've already heard have already been pronounced and they were as sure as executed on us and they were executed. Don't get me wrong. They were executed, but let's see on whom. I love when the Spirit makes interpretation easy and then we get to soak in gospel application like like creatures basking in the sun. It's not hard to understand right here. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. People of God, he's done this. You don't have to wrestle with that interpretation. The hard part is believing it. He has turned these judgments away. What judgments has he turned away? Can we name them all? Have you ever woken up on some days and you're like, God, I've committed such heinous evil against you that I don't even know of most of it. But can you show me the things that I have done? Reveal to me these things so that I can confess them and repent of them. I had a seminary professor that taught me to do that. God, I don't know all my sin, but when you show it to me, I'm going to confess and repent. Can we name all the ways that God's judgment has been turned away from us? No, we can't. They are innumerable. And I think, I think somebody knows today where you would have been had not God brought you to salvation. The judgments that were hanging over you. Somebody knows just how perverse your heart was before you met Jesus. When you walked in the passions of your flesh, and I'm guessing that someone could testify to the heinousness of your own offenses against God. You rebelled with your heart. You rebelled with your mind. You rebelled with your soul, the very, the very core of who you are. You rebelled also with all of your strength, you and me both. In the delusion of unbelief, we walked against God. We spoke against God. If God told us to go one way, we went the other. If God said, sit down, we stood up. That's what we did. We ignored his word. We disregarded his spirit. We did not treasure his son. And our actions proved it. So how is it that we joyfully celebrate today? He has turned innumerable judgments away. Innumerable judgments. And you know, in doing so, he didn't just say, that's ah, fine. I know you didn't mean to. It's okay. I know you didn't mean to. But you and I, you and I both know, we meant to. We, we meant to. 
He didn't just look the other way. He didn't just sweep it under the rug. He didn't just like take a step back and cool off and sort of let it slide. And thank God he didn't do those things because if he did, he wouldn't be a God worthy of worship. Holy, 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 righteous and just in all his ways. So how is it that we joyfully celebrate today? Because when the unending waters of God's wrath were tipped on edge, they were at the same time turned away from us and unleashed on God's own son. That's why we sing aloud. That's why we shout. I know you're a bunch of Baptists. Me too. It makes me uncomfortable, just to be real honest with you. You know, there are times when we need to let loose because of the goodness of God poured out on us in Jesus Christ. I challenge you to sit and think about the judgments that God has turned away in the Son, what you deserved. And how God chose to punish that on Jesus and not you. He's turned away judgments, innumerable judgments, but also innumerable enemies cleared away. Satan sought to take you down for good, to make you ineffective for God, absent in the kingdom. He mobilized his workers. He directs his subjects. He utilizes his knowledge of your own sinful tendencies. And then he works schemes that are active right now to take you off track. And in the end, God clears away that enemy. Believer, I know you fight. I know you fight. And I know you're probably tired, but don't lose heart. I know you're equipping yourself for the battle because you're here, aren't you? You're equipping yourself for the battle, but sometimes it seems like the battles are relentless. But don't give up. Let the fuel for your fight today come from the good as done promise that you have divine backup. You got that back up. He's here helping you now through the Spirit. And at the word of the Father, he'll arrive with the sword of his tongue and with a sweeping blow, clear away the enemies. He'll even deliver, as Hebrews tells us, he'll deliver the death blow to death itself. Finally which came fully at the cross. Zephaniah here writes of the all-inclusive category of the enemies of God's people. It's hard to fathom, okay, the, the, this brief book, three chapters, and this guy, is he's thinking as he's writing of all the enemies that the people of God have faced. All-inclusive category, 
everyone who's ever said or done anything against the redeemed vanquished. This is the promise that we have. Our enemies, innumerable enemies, cleared away. He's done these things. And then he has joined us with his presence. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Matyar says that this is the proof of God's inward satisfaction over his people. Compared to the rest of the book, this seems kind of unexpected, doesn't it? It seems unexpected. It's almost like we have these terrible judgments and then we have this, this beautiful ending. How is all of this accomplished? And then you start to see how the, how the prophets wrote on what they knew, but they longed to know something that they couldn't know. As Peter tells us, you remember Peter saying that. There's, there's, there's a gap somewhere in here that, that they can't speak to the particulars, but we get to speak to the particulars about Jesus. This ending seems impossible to the human mind compared to the rest of the book, which is what makes salvation such a miracle. The Lord is present. He says, you'll never again fear evil. So that moves us to our second activity. So we joyfully celebrate for innumerable reasons. Secondly, we fearlessly speak of God's expressive presence. We fearlessly speak of God's expressive presence. I say this on verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem. So it's almost like the theme of of life at this point. Hey, Jerusalem, this is what's going on. Fear not. Don't let your hands grow weak. So verses 16 and 17, we have a, a couple of notes here. First off, prepare for his presence. And that's where we get those two commands. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Again, he's pointing here on that day to the other side of the day of the Lord. These two commands right here help us mind our own condition with the, with the judgment being complete and the bliss of the new creation now a reality. So we're sort, of, we're sort of jumping ahead in time here, okay? Without these reminders, we might envision entering into eternal joys of Christ with some type of lingering post-traumatic stress. Fear not. All I know is fear. Fear not. I don't know what that's like. Weakness. Discouragement, that's all I know. So you're telling me, you're telling me that, that this is going to be the rea- reality? I don't know what it's like to not live in fear, um, but I know what it's like to live in fear. And God has called us to that life, and he's prepared for us that life without fear, that life without discouragement, without weak hands. So he says, allow no fear, no fear. On that day, being frightened and afraid will be a thing of the past. 
And I know for some of you it's hard to imagine because fear now stands as some type of Lord over you. And it's not situated under the lordship of Jesus. Fear is debilitating, paralyzing even. And so the command indicates that in the power of the Spirit, we determine when we will be fearful or not. And in the consummate kingdom, after our earthly bodies are raised and renewed, we'll be able to rid ourselves of fear without fighting the sin nature. If we're living in light of that coming kingdom, then our right relationship with God now should manifest in fearlessness. God did not give us a spirit of fear. Allow no fear, but he also says, enable no weakness. Don't let, some of, some of your versions may say it differently. Uh, in the Hebrew, it is don't let your, your, hand, your hands hang limp. Don't let your hands hang limp. So the hand is the, the, the picture of strength and power. The, the passage we read earlier, there was, there was nobody. So my righteous right hand brought salvation. There was nobody who could save themselves. And I made it happen, God said. Strength and power. So a limp hand refers to weakness or powerlessness or a sense of discouragement. And let me tell you folks, you know this about me already. My Christian life is characterized by swimming upstream against the currents of discouragement. Every day. You know, you folks that brim with joy, I just don't understand you. But I thank God for you. You're just built different than I am. But there are a lot of you that share my struggle. Day to day, it's a battle against discouragement. Day to day, it's a battle for joy. And I hope that you can, for a moment, join me in the transcendent thought that discouragement will also be a thing of the past. The constant battle to cast off the weight of what we accumulate day by day the battle to get outside of our own heads, the battle to put one foot in front of the other. Discouragement dictates actions and attitudes and squeezes the joy from our lives. But at the same time, we submit to its demands. I submit to its demands. By the Spirit... However, we must heed the commands. Do not be discouraged. Do not let your hands hang limp. Don't bow to that master. And we're reminded in the consummate kingdom once again, we'll enjoy a strong hand without fighting the fallen flesh. 
And if we're living for that kingdom, then our right relationship with God should exhibit power and not weakness, not discouragement. Allow no fear, enable no weakness. Prepare for his presence. But then you continue looking at verse 17. Receive his presence. I don't know what your current view of God is, but these verses probably open up a new understanding or a new avenue of worship and relationship to the Lord God. Do you often read and think, believer, about the fact that God will rejoice over you with gladness? In fact, he does. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. These are not thoughts about God that we typically have. It says here that he is mighty to save. He's the mighty one who will save. That's a, the idea of a warrior or a hero who's already proven himself by his deeds. And so the commentators say, he will no more wreak havoc. Rather, he will bring peace. So he's the warrior that's proven himself. But no more war at this point. He's the mighty warrior. And then we see the, the next three lines. The next three lines of this verse express God's, as one writer says, Robertson, he says, deepest inner joy and satisfaction. He continues, listen to this, that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. This is what God thinks of you. This is how he feels about you as much as we are able to describe his feelings. Three lines. And there's just beauty of relationship that, that we, my words are only going to scratch the surface of, of the beauty here. The depth and the majesty of God's love for us. It says, glad rejoicing. This is what his presence is going to bring. Receive this, folks. Glad rejoicing. God delights over you to the point of singing. I'm regularly struck with how music is the avenue in which people express their love so much. You turn on the radio, nearly every song, nearly every song is going to have some aspect of Love relationship, not just like romantic, but like one to another, love. That is how we express ourselves. I'm telling you, it's not people on the radio that figured this out. This was God's first. He did it first. Glad rejoicing. It says he'll quiet you by his love. Quiet love. Commentators find this line difficult to interpret. It's as if God joins his people in singing, but then he soothes them by expressing his love. So what House says, 
But we must join with the commentators and recognize that human minds would never create such a God. That's why we have a hard time wrapping our brains around this expressive presence. Some of you got that stoic view of God, like it doesn't, it doesn't show emotion. We want to be careful here. He doesn't do these things. For some of y'all, he's mad all the time. You gotta stop. Now, if you're convicted about sin, then deal with it. If you just have a wrong view of God, then correct it according to God's word. Quiet love. Quiet love has its place, but so does loud exaltation. Glad rejoicing, quiet love, and then loud exaltation. He breaks out in song over us, his people. You know, we spend a lot of time reminding ourselves of our own depravity and sinfulness, and rightly so, but we must never forget the truth about what God has made us in Christ. In the beloved, in the beloved. And so the gospel, the good news of the gospel, it levels our thinking. The overwhelming notions of failure or insufficiency and inadequacy of sinfulness and corruption, they don't drive us to despair. They humbly drive us to Christ. And then those notions are eclipsed by gospel facts. The new reality that we are loved by God with an everlasting love. And it's not a love that struggles to communicate or to be expressed. But it's a love of clear expression, of jubilation, an elated love, a loud love with song, loud song, singing from the most holy triune God who is himself love. Words don't do it. I can't describe, I'm doing my best to paint this picture here for you. I can't. They just can't. God's presence makes these things ours, not only in its full future expression, but also here and now. Oh, brothers and sisters, loved by God. Loud exaltation. So we need to prepare for his presence. We need to receive that presence. Oh, what beauty is that presence. Thirdly, third activity, we expectantly await our full restoration. We expectantly await our full restoration, verses 18 through 20. What we have here is really a, a summary in conclusion. And again, it may be a surprise conclusion when you read the rest of the book. How is it that this came about so surely and so clearly? I think we can take note of a couple of things as we expectantly wait. First off, restoration happens corporately. 
Restoration happens corporately. These verses speak of gathering a couple of times, gathering. The language indicates that it's a people who've been wandering aimlessly. And in verse 18, it says, they're mourning the festival. So it's like there's a festival, the the traditions of Israel, that they want to get to, and they can't. And they're mourning. You remember, these people were going to be taken captive in Babylon. So all of their their norms and their routines and their rituals were stripped from them. We're mourning the festival. We want to do the things we've always done. And there's no one to bring them together for their celebratory rituals. And so the promise of God is that God is the one who will gather them to restore them. They'll be gathered together. You all know that I watch a lot of sports. Every now and again, I'll see a clip from a sporting event from 2020. And you look around, and you're immediately struck by the fact that there's no fans. There's no fans in any of those clips. You watch baseball games, and it's just empty seats. And I remember watching some players on TV talk about how awkward it felt. Nobody was gathering for these games. Fans didn't like it. Players didn't like it. There's something in us as humans that gathers for that celebration. Believers, there's something in us that longs to be gathered together. We anticipate when the full number of the redeemed gather around the throne of God. And this is the reason that we gather here today. Another foretaste. You didn't come to Cedar View Baptist Church today thinking, man, I'm getting a foretaste of the kingdom. I'm getting foretaste of the worship around the throne of God. And the guitarist will remember every chord. I thought y'all liked that a little more. Restoration happens corporately. We long for this in our very being. God will make it happen. Restoration happens corporately. Restoration, secondly, happens completely. There are many sorrows that accompany the people of God throughout history. But these sorrows will be removed, as one commentator says. Some of these ideas are repeated in verses 19 and 20. You see those. The oppressors are handled. Everyone and everything, as we mentioned earlier, that served a part in the schemes of the enemy will be eradicated. But Syria of the past, Babylon of the future, in their day, your persecutors, church, we will no longer be subject to those oppressive forces. Our oppressors handled completely. The lame saved and the outcasts gathered. These are paired together on purpose. The lame, we know, are not permitted to go into the sanctuary of the Lord's worship, the temple. And if we take lameness As the effects of sin, which is what it shows us, or uncleanness or anything of that nature. If we take the effects of sin 
then we are all crippled. We're unable to make the pilgrimage to Zion. We're unable to get to the festival ourselves. To New Jerusalem, as we are situated. However, Matya writes, says, no personal inability will be allowed to prevent the Lord's pilgrims from coming safely home. Rather, the Lord will provide everything necessary for them. So, folks, you need to recognize that your sin has made you an outcast in regard to the presence of God. Your sin has made you lame in regard to the presence of God. You cannot attain the presence of God on your own. And we are all in this broken condition. But as God would have it, he's the one who goes out there to where the outcast is and picks them up and carries them to the gathering in the end, to this restoration. The lame are saved, the outcasts are gathered, and then you see what happens when the, when the people get together. They gather, their shame is replaced. For the people of God to return home in this day, it meant a change of reputation. A change of reputation. Formerly, they were, they were shamed for their sin and rebellion and the way that God treated them in their judgment, their punishment, but following the redemption and restoration, they would be, as he says a couple of times here, they would be renowned in all the known world. Shame is replaced with renown. These are the realities coming for us believers. This all seems very unlikely, a surprise ending for the book, as I've told you today. A surprise because Zephaniah can't give us the details of the one who makes this all happen. Maybe the idea of negatives, photos, negatives, as the prophetic writers write, they are they're showing us things that are not totally clear. And, and in many ways, the, the center of what could be the portrait is what we don't yet see. We see all the other details. We see the clues and we see the context. and We see shadows. We see the before and the after. We see, though, when the story is unfolding... And we see when the picture is developed, what emerges is a, is a portrait of the Messiah, Jesus. So we wonder, how could such a surprise ending happen for this wretched, rebellious people? It is all the grace of God in Jesus Christ given to us, given to us. So you ought to, this morning, be able to sing aloud. You ought to be able to shout. Amen. Because of what God has done to save us.
some of you realize that in your sin, you are currently an object of God's wrath. Maybe this morning you would acknowledge that Jesus has stepped in that place to receive, to absorb God's wrath against your sin. And by confessing him as Lord today, repenting of sin, you will have the salvation about which we speak. God will delight over you, sing over you. These truths will be yours if you repent and believe today. Would you do that? Would you make that known to us today? Maybe, believer, uh, you have that sort of partial view of God and you live just a slave to your failures, a slave to your struggles and insufficiencies, and, and you need to realize, yeah, you are a terrible sinner, but God through Christ now calls you his child. God through Christ delights in you. Some of y'all heard me say that, and you still don't believe it. I just don't know. I just don't know if God really, really delights in me. If you know Christ, believe his word. Trust the promise this morning. Let's respond by singing. Um, Kyle will be available as we sing this morning. Let's pray. Father, your your word restores us again as people beaten down week after week and, and eyes turned away by so many different things and things that challenge your position, challenge the worship that belongs to you and you alone. Father, I pray that as we respond to your word this morning, that you would, God, build into us these right thoughts about you. God, make these things permanent. Write them on our hearts. Let us never forget your love, your expressive love. Father, you don't hide your love, but you have demonstrated it, not the least of which, in the giving of your Son. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we're thankful for this truth. We're thankful, and so we celebrate it as we sing this morning. God, receive our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Or if you would, uh, stand with us. We're going to respond by singing hymn number 210, My Jesus, I Love Thee.
I did, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I didn't tell you all to sit down, so you just keep standing. So we're just going to keep standing today then. All right, we want to respond together all 